Good afternoon. It's uh, good to be back with you after a, a couple of weeks away. Thank you to, to Bijou and Pastor Ben for serving the church and, and preaching in uh, my absence. We're going to continue this afternoon in the study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but before we do, uh, join me for a short word of prayer. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so, Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, illumine the words of Scripture this afternoon. And, Father, show us the way in which we should go. And, Father, we pray that Jesus would be clear who he is in his gospel. And, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Oxford University reference defines the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, this way. We value least the things which are most familiar. We value least the things which are most familiar. It describes the fact that, that sometimes, not always, but sometimes the more we know of a person, the harder it is to respect them. The less we accept their authority, the more we know of them. Now, for those of you who have older brothers and sisters, uh, just ask yourself how accepting you were of their authority when your parents put them in charge while they were away for a couple of hours. And my guess is you would understand something of the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, the Harvard Business Review conducted a, a survey of people who were promoted from just a, a regular employee into a, a management position, so somebody who had no supervisory responsibilities to one who was supervising others. And of these people that they interviewed, they found that 70% of them lost friends as a result of their promotion. Well, why? That's because sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. Their friends had a hard time accepting these people's authority. Well, who is this person to tell me what to do? We were working right next to each other for years and months. We're friends. Does she think she is better than me all of the sudden? Well, if you haven't already, go ahead and, and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. It's going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And in this text for today, in Luke's text for today, actually in verse 24, we find a statement from Jesus that is actually often used as an illustration of what the meaning of the phrase familiarity breeds contempt is. And that phrase is, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Or as recorded in Mark's gospel, Jesus' statement as recorded in Mark's gospel, which has a parallel account of this same story, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Well, so in, this, in our text for today, Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth and is teaching in the synagogue there in Nazareth. And in his teaching, Jesus makes a claim about his own identity and his authority as the Son of God. Uh, but in response to this, we see the people of Nazareth ask, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, we know this guy. He is no one special. How can he be making the claims that he is making? The familiarity breeds contempt. Now, the people of of Nazareth thought they were familiar with who Jesus was, they knew his family, and so they were not interested in listening to or believing in one who came from their hometown, somebody that they knew to be a carpenter's son. 
And so tragically, the people of Nazareth, they, they largely reject Jesus. They oppose him. And so please follow along as I start reading uh, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy and yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up drove him out of town and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, I do not know how familiar or unfamiliar many of you might be with the message of the gospel and the person of Jesus. Uh, perhaps you have grown up around the church or in the church all of your life. If that is you today, my, my prayer is that this afternoon that the familiarity that you have with the gospel of the church and the message of Jesus will not breed contempt in your own heart and life, but that you will submit to Jesus' authority. But perhaps you are here and, and you're not very familiar with, with the message of Jesus or the good news of the gospel at all. If that is you the, this afternoon, I, I pray that you will come to know Jesus more through the preaching uh, that this text from Luke will lead you to believe. The, the main idea that I think Luke is trying to get across in this text this afternoon is that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those held captive by the power of sin. Jesus was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those held captive by the power of sin. And he calls you to receive and believe him. And so with that in mind, I have three points for you to consider from today's text. The first is good news spread. Second is good news proclaimed. And the third is good news rejected. So good news spread, good news proclaimed, and good news rejected. So first, good news spread. Uh, so really, in, in this passage from Luke's gospel, what we really see is the, the start of Jesus' public ministry. So at Jesus' baptism, which, which Pastor Ben preached about last week, uh, we see the, the Spirit descend on Jesus as a dove, anointing and empowering him for his ministry on earth, what God the Father had sent him to do. 
in the, the power of the Spirit, Jesus is, is led into the wilderness and he resists Satan's temptations in the wilderness. He succeeds where Adam, the first man, fell. He succeeds where, where Israel, God's chosen people, had failed. And he resists Satan's temptation and he remains obedient to his heavenly Father. And so then when we come to, to Luke 4.14, 4, we, we see that it is in the power of that same Spirit that Jesus embarks on, Jesus begins his public ministry. It's the, uh, Jesus was ministering in the power of God. And so I think that should cause us just for a second, brothers and sisters, and, and pause and be amazed that this Spirit's power that was at work in Jesus during his time on earth, uh, that is given, the Spirit is given to each and every Christian. The same power that empowered Jesus to resist temptation, to endure the suffering of the cross is given to, to each and every believer that they might resist temptation as they walk in the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, as we read and, and just throughout Luke's gospel, especially these first few chapters, the role of the Holy Spirit is emphasized over and over again. But we don't want to take the gift of the Spirit for granted. You should pray that, that you would be daily filled by the Spirit that you would walk in the Spirit, that God would strengthen you by His Spirit. He has given it to you as a gift to equip you to do His will. Well, empowered by the Spirit, Jesus begins His, his public ministry in, in Galilee. And actually, really from this point in Luke's Gospel, all the way through, through chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, is the record of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. That's what Luke is going to spend time focusing on for the next several chapters of his gospel. Uh, the region of Galilee was not especially large, but there were a number of towns and villages in that region in Galilee that Jesus traveled among during his, his ministry in that region of Israel. And as Jesus began ministering, we see in the text that his fame began to spread. He becomes well-known. But as Jesus' fame is, is spreading, what I want you to see is that Luke draws our attention specifically to Jesus' teaching ministry. He draws our attention to Jesus' preaching. Now, Luke seems to indicate that it is Jesus' teaching that leads his fame to spread. It is his, his teaching that is being praised by everyone. And so much in the same way that in our text, we see him teaching in this synagogue in Nazareth. It seems as he has been teaching in a similar manner in, in synagogues all throughout Galilee. That's what we see in, in verse 15 of our text. Uh, now, we do know, uh, particularly from, from Mark chapter 1, which provides a parallel account of this time in Jesus' ministry, that he was not just teaching around Galilee. He was also performing miracles alongside of his, his teaching uh, so certainly these signs and, and wonders that Jesus was performing was a, another reason that his fame was spreading. But Luke places the emphasis on Jesus' teaching, both in, in verses 14 and 15, and, and really, as we'll see both this week and next week, throughout chapter 4 of Luke's gospel. And he does this because Jesus' teaching, his preaching, his proclamation of the good news is what was at the center of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, in fact, uh, this story of, of Jesus preaching in the synagogue here in, in Nazareth does not come first or likely does not come first in the chronology or the, 
the timeline of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. In, in terms of timing, it probably actually comes after what happens in Capernaum, which is actually what Luke puts in the second half of chapter four. It's what we're gonna study next week. Uh, well, what happens now with the first half of chapter four probably comes after that in terms of the timeline of Jesus's ministry. Uh, this is the timeline that we see in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. Uh, now, as I say that, I think it's important to note that in first century scholarship and in, in historical records in the first century, chronology was not as important as it is to uh, many people today, certainly in scholarship today, certainly people like me who are from the West. So it's not as if Luke is making a mistake by putting this event where he did. He's not confused about when it happened and, and what happened before what. He did it for a reason. Uh, Luke puts it first because it helps frame the rest of Jesus's public ministry. Uh, Luke does it because it shows that Jesus came to preach and teach. It shows the, the content of that message. It shows who Jesus is. And Jesus, as we'll see next week, he, he states this explicitly as sort of his mission statement in Luke 4.43 he says particularly that he came to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. Uh, that is why he came. And so brothers and sisters, as we come here to, to Luke chapter four, as we come here to, to these verses, I want you to see that, that Jesus fundamentally came to deliver a message. He came to deliver the message of salvation that could be found in him. He came to call people to repentance and faith. He certainly performed many signs and wonders and miraculous deeds throughout his earthly ministry. But these signs and wonders were a demonstration of who he was. And they served as a validation of his, his message to confirm the truths of the gospel that he was preaching. They were to aid the spread of the good news. And so as we come here, we see and in verses 14 and 15 of our text that this good news that Jesus has been teaching in the synagogues around Galilee begins to spread. And so then Luke zeroes in on this account in Nazareth to show the content of that good news that Jesus has been preaching. And so that leads us to the, the second point of the sermon, the second point, which is good news proclaimed. And so in, in verse 16, we see Jesus head back to his hometown of Nazareth he begins teaching in the synagogue there, just as he has in some of the other towns where he has been. It was a, a custom in the Jewish community of that time that would allow visiting teachers to, to come and, and preach in the synagogue at the invitation of the, the leader of the synagogue. Uh, so it seems as if Jesus's teaching ministry uh, was at least well known enough that he was invited to preach in the synagogue at Nazareth as he had been in some other synagogues around uh, Galilee. And as he comes and as he teaches, the, the book of Isaiah was handed to him and Jesus finds Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, which is what Princey read from just a moment ago, and he begins to read. And now actually the, the verses that Luke records Jesus reading here is some combination of Isaiah 61 verses one and two, as well as Isaiah 58 verse six. So uh, some commentators, some scholars speculate that 
Uh, Luke may have added Isaiah 58, 6 as a sort of commentary or additional explanation of Jesus's message for his readers. Uh, it could also be that, that Jesus simply read a, a longer portion from uh, the scroll of Isaiah, but Luke is summarizing it with these three verses, uh, much in the same way that the sermon we have recorded of Jesus may be the summary of a bit longer message that he delivered in the synagogue. Uh, well, either way, in the reading from Isaiah and in Jesus's sermon that follows, we find a, a summary of Jesus's mission and Jesus's identity. And these verses are essential to understanding Jesus's ministry on earth. Now, these verses are important. This is why Luke decides to place this story at the beginning of his account of Jesus's public ministry. He knows that if you understand what Jesus is saying here, you will more fully understand Jesus in his ministry on earth. Uh, so please follow along as I read, starting in, in verse 17 again. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Well, if you would, I, I want you to actually turn in your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 59. So if you will, turn left in your Bible. We're going to go to Isaiah 59 and look at a couple chapters in Isaiah. Uh, I want you to turn over to Isaiah because I think it may be helpful to have some understanding or, or some context of this section of Isaiah uh, from which Jesus read there in the synagogue. Uh, so one writer explains the, the context of Isaiah 61, which makes up the bulk of what Jesus read there in the synagogue. He, he explains the context of Isaiah 61 this way. The good news announced in Isaiah 61, the good news announced in Isaiah 61, which is what Jesus read, is anticipated by the message in chapters 58 through 60, where the call to repentance accompanies the promise of God's salvation. So you have Isaiah doing two things in the text. He's, he's calling the people to repentance, and he is promising a future salvation for God's people. And so in Isaiah 58, God spends some time condemning the sins of the people of Israel, uh, specifically their uh, hypocritical and, and really just empty religious practices in which they're offering sacrifices or they're fasting before the Lord, but their hearts are not truly in it. They they lack any true righteousness or true devotion to the Lord. They do not have any true love of neighbor. Uh, so their hearts seem uh, far from God. That is what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah chapter 58. They are a, a sinful people. And so then this is what Isaiah says to them in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. He writes to the people, but your iniquities, or in other words, your sins, but your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Uh, so the, the sins of the people are so great that it's made a separation between them and God. God does not listen. Now, friends, I think uh, 
uh, we should stop for a second and notice that this is not just a description of Israel here in Isaiah 59 too. This is a description of all people who are lost in their sins. Uh, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Apart from God's redeeming grace that we find in Christ, all of our iniquities are separating us from our God. And all of our sins have hidden his face from us so that he does not listen. The sin and injustice we are all guilty of have made a separation between us and God. But this is what Isaiah is, is telling to the people of, of Israel at this time. And so chapter 58, and really the, the first part of chapter 59 of Isaiah, is a call for the people to repent, to turn from their sins. A call that actually they seem to be, begin listening to in the, the middle part of Isaiah 59, uh, but what I want you to see is, is as the people begin to confess their sins in the second half of Isaiah 59, I want you to see how they describe the sins that they're confessing. So look with me at Isaiah 59, verse 9. So this is, is the people of Israel responding to Isaiah. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along a wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight. We are like the dead among those who are healthy. And so as the people seem to turn and, and start at least having some confession of their sin, they describe their sins as having a blinding effect on them. They describe their sins, uh, they describe themselves as groping around in darkness by being blind in their sin. And so when Jesus reads the scroll of Isaiah, and when he reads from Isaiah chapter 61 and says that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him to proclaim a recovery of, the sight, of sight to the blind, we need to understand it in this context. And Jesus is not ultimately speaking of recovery of sight to those who are physically blind, that is not what Jesus is saying from Isaiah 61. He is talking about the recovery of sight to those who are spiritually blind, who are groping about because of the darkness of their sin, those who are lost in the darkness of their sin. And the darkness of this sin is, is so great that in Isaiah 59, God says that he will have to act to bring about salvation. God will have to act. Now look at verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's declaration. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of your children's children from now on and forever, says the Lord. And so in those verses, those last two verses of Isaiah 59, God promises that he will send a redeemer on whom he will place his spirit and whom he will give his words. And so with that in mind, we can, we can actually fast forward to Isaiah chapter 61, and we see that this, this servant, this prophet, this redeemer, this Messiah that Isaiah has been talking about for so many chapters begins speaking about his mission. And this is, what, this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, that is what Jesus reads in the synagogue in Nazareth. It is primarily those two verses from Isaiah 61. And then he says, and we go back to Luke chapter 4, if we, we go back to Luke chapter 4, he says in verse 21, today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. In other words, I am the one that Isaiah anticipated. I am the servant of the Lord. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has been anointed by the Lord to proclaim salvation and to bring salvation to God's people. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus, because he has anointed me, Jesus, to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so we see in these, these verses from Luke chapter 4 that Jesus is making an incredibly bold statement about his own identity. He identifies himself with the anointed servant and prophet of Isaiah. And Jesus is, is clearly identifying himself as the Messiah in these verses. And Jesus does more than that. He also clarifies his mission in these verses. Notice that Jesus' mission is a mission of proclamation. Now, what had the Spirit of the Lord anointed him to do? It was to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His ministry was to announce, proclaim, preach salvation that had come in him. Well, with all that, you may be sitting there this afternoon and, and wondering then, well, okay, just who are then the, the poor and the oppressed? Who are the captives that, that Jesus is speaking of, that Isaiah is speaking of in these verses? Well, certainly in the immediate context of the, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was looking forward to the captivity of the nation of Israel. Uh, they would shortly be conquered by Babylon. Uh, they would be taken from the land of Israel into captivity. Uh, captivity, as Isaiah makes clear, that is brought on by the sin of the people. And so Isaiah was certainly looking forward to the day when God's people would be returned from captivity, when they would be freed, when they would be returned from Babylon. But Isaiah was looking forward to more than that. He was looking forward to the promised Messiah who would free people from their sins. He would free people who are captive to their sin, who would give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind, who would provide salvation to a people who were poor and desperate and had no other means of salvation. And so friends, in, in these verses from Luke chapter four in this section that Jesus reads from, from the scroll of Isaiah, you should see that the coming of Jesus is good news. In Christ, you are, are freed from the burden of earning your way to God and of trying to earn your own salvation. You are freed from the burden of trying to perform every single religious ritual just right, of confessing just right, or, or offering praises just right, or whatever other religious ritual you want to insert. You are freed from obeying every part of the law, of fasting enough, of, of trying to be generous enough. 
It's not that those things are unimportant, but you are freed from the burden of having to earn your way to God. Your sin has made a separation between you and your God, but it is not you that fixes that separation. It is Jesus. And the miracles and healings that Jesus performed throughout his his time on earth points to that truth. He relieved people from their physical burdens as a sign to point to the spiritual freedom that could be found in him. Well, those verses in Isaiah that, that Jesus read, they prophesied that the Messiah would announce the year of the Lord's favor. As Jesus says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord had anointed him to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this year of the Lord's favor was not just a return from exile for the people of Israel, but salvation from sin that comes in Jesus Christ. That is why Jesus says he was was the one announcing the year of the Lord's favor. The Apostle Paul writing in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, the letter of 2 Corinthians, he writes this, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Have that separation that your sins have made between you and God fixed. Be reconciled. Well, how are we reconciled? This is what Paul goes on to write. He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you, don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Or we might say, now is the day in the year of God's favor. Friends, as the Apostle Paul writes, now is the day of salvation. Jesus has come through his blood. Forgiveness from sin is offered to all those who repent and believe the good news of the gospel. But friends, this this year of the Lord's favor will not last forever. Jesus will come again, and he'll come again in judgment. And for those who did not listen to this good news that Jesus came and preached and, and proclaimed, the day of salvation will be past. It will be too late. And so friends, I, I urge you along with the Apostle Paul to be reconciled to God today. Now is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins if you have not, and believe. Do not reject the Messiah and the good news as the people of Nazareth did. Jesus came proclaiming good news of salvation, and because of his grace, that good news is still being preached to you today. That is what the church of Jesus Christ does. It preaches the good news of the gospel to those lost in the darkness of their sin. That brings us to the the third and final point of the, the sermon today, which is good news rejected. As Jesus reads the scroll and delivers his sermon, the eyes of, of all those who are there are, are fixed on him. Here is this, this teacher of whom they have, they have heard so much, whose news has been spreading throughout Galilee. And we see in verse 22 that after Jesus delivers his sermon, the, the people are amazed at his gracious words. Or again, if we were to to turn to Mark chapter 1 in the parallel account of these events, we would read, many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? 
What is the wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Well, unfortunately, there is a, a but or a yet to the amazement of the people. We, we see that in verse 22 of our text. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet, yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know this guy and his, his parents? How could he be doing these things? In Mark's account, it actually says that the people were offended by him, that they were offended by Jesus because they knew his family and thought him just to be a carpenter. And friends, familiarity breeds contempt. As one scholar put it, the people were scandalized by Jesus' lowly origin. They found it difficult to believe he was any better than they or his family were. In their opinion, he was nothing more than an ordinary craftsman. Their physical knowledge of Jesus prevented them from having a spiritual knowledge of him. And so instead of Jesus' teaching or his, his miracles leading, leading them to, to marvel at the grace of God, it leads the people present to reject Jesus, to oppose him, to be offended by him. And familiarity breeds contempt. And so friends, what about you? Has familiarity with the, the story of Jesus bred contempt in your, in your own heart? Now, some of you may have grown up around the church and, and around Christianity, as I said at the, the beginning of this sermon. Now, you may have heard the name of Jesus for a long time. Now, Christianity may be fairly widespread in the country that you are from. Uh, churches may be on every corner. And some of you may have been hearing stories of Jesus for your entire life. But be honest, has familiarity with Christianity bred a contempt in your own heart? Has it prevented you from fully considering the claims of Christianity? Has religion and the, the rituals of going to church become something that you just do because you have always done it, because your parents did it, because that's what people expect of you? Have you ever considered how Jesus' words apply to your own life? Have you ever considered the call to repent and believe? Now, have any of you ever heard a song or had a song that you've listened to maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of times, but one day you actually feel like you hear the lyrics for the first time? You realize that you may have been listening to this song for a long time. You may have even sung along with this song but you've never actually really considered what the words of the song have said. Now, uh, since becoming a parent, I have found that I have done this a few times. I've been listening to a song, my kids have been present, and I realize as I'm listening to the lyrics, you know what? I'm not sure I really want to be listening to that song right now. I'm not really sure this is a song that I should be listening to. It's like I, I finally heard the lyrics of this song for the first time. Well, friends, don't, don't let that happen to you with the gospel. Don't let a familiarity with it allow you to come and, and sing along with the songs here when you come every Friday to church and hear the scripture read and hear a sermon without ever considering what God is actually communicating to you. For some of you, that uh, may mean you need to ask yourselves, have I ever repented and believed the good news of the gospel? Have I ever considered how Jesus' call applies to my own life? 
For those of you who are Christians, you may need to ask, when was the last time I was convicted by something in God's word? When was the last time I truly let God speak to me through his word? Well, brothers and sisters, if you can't think of an answer to that question, let me give you just a a couple of words of encouragement. One, every week as you come to church, let me encourage you just to try to listen to at least one thing from the sermon and from the text of scripture that applies to your life, that you can apply to your life. Where does this this text lead me to praise God more? Where might I need to grow in my own obedience to God? Where may I need to repent and be changed? Brothers and sisters, don't let familiarity breed contempt. And friends, for for those of you who are here and, and know yourself not to be Christians, Have you ever actually considered the claims of Christianity? Or have you just assumed that you know enough? Or that what you've heard about Christianity or what you have been taught maybe about Jesus is true? Have you actually taken the time to see what the Bible says about who Jesus is? Have you taken the time to investigate the claims of Jesus and the the claims of Christianity? Don't let an assumed familiarity with what Christianity and who Jesus is keep you from seeing Jesus for who he is. Read what the Bible has to say about Jesus before dismissing him and his claims. Don't let familiarity, even a false familiarity, breed contempt in your own heart. Well, back to our story. And because Jesus is God, Jesus recognizes what is going on in the hearts of those theirs. He knows their doubts. He knows their doubts over them over him and he confronts them. Look at verse 23. Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. He also said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Well, eventually those who would oppose Jesus and continue to oppose Jesus would again tell Jesus later in his ministry, doctor, heal yourself. When Jesus was on the cross, Jesus' opponents would mock him by saying, if he were truly the son of God, get down. If you're truly the son of God, rescue yourself from the cross. They would use it to mock him. Well, this same hard-heartedness and lack of faith that was present in those who were mocking Jesus on the cross is present in the people of Nazareth. Oh, yeah? Aren't you just a carpenter's son? Why don't you prove that you are who you say you are? Jesus recognized that the people wanted him to perform a sign. Uh, This is what he means when he says, do here in your hometown what you did in Capernaum. Later in Jesus' ministry, the The Pharisees would verbally demand a sign, and Jesus will tell them only an evil or an adulterous generation demands a sign. Well, here, at least, the the people are demanding a sign in their hearts. They want Jesus to perform a sign, to do something like he has done in Capernaum, in his previous ministry around Galilee. They won't believe Jesus despite the teaching that they have heard, despite the signs that they have already heard, despite his profound wisdom, they have no faith and they do not believe. The people did not need a sign. They needed faith. And we will see that throughout Jesus's ministry that plenty plenty of people do not believe despite seeing the signs that Jesus performed. The people there did not need a sign. 
They needed eyes of faith. They needed spiritual sight. They needed to be set free, to be released, to be given sight, to listen to the good news that Jesus was proclaiming. So Jesus continues his rebuke of the people by pointing to two stories from the Old Testament that showed God's grace extending outside of Israel to the Gentiles. Uh, One in which God provides food for a widow in Sidon through the ministry of Elijah. So the land of Israel was under a drought. It was in a famine. And though many in Israel were hungry, there was many widows in Israel. Uh, God sends Elijah to a widow in Sidon outside of Israel. And he points to another instance in which Naaman, the famous general in the Syrian army, is healed from his leprosy, despite many in Israel also being afflicted with leprosy at that same time. And Jesus' point in these stories, as, as one commentator put it, is for Jesus, these examples demonstrated that Nazareth could not make exclusive claims on him. And since Nazareth had in fact rejected him, he would go elsewhere. Nazareth may have rejected him, but others would gladly receive him. Jesus was a a Jewish Messiah. His message came first to the Jewish people, but they largely rejected it. But in God's sovereign plan, that led the good news of the gospel going to the nations, going to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is essentially telling the people of Nazareth here, you do not have authority over me. You do not control the message that God has anointed me to preach. If you reject it, I will take it elsewhere. The people seem to understand exactly what Jesus is telling them, or at least enough to understand that he is speaking against them and that he is rebuking them. Uh, They seem to understand he is is making a significant claim here, uh, and he is saying salvation and favor is not something that the nation of Israel has exclusive claim over. And so the people are enraged by this. And we see in verse 29 that they seem to to force Jesus out of the city. They drive him out of town and seem intent on killing him and casting him off of a cliff. But he miraculously passes through them and is unharmed. In a bit of irony, Jesus does seem to heal himself as, as the people want him to do in verse 23. He miraculously rescues himself from their grip. His hour had not yet come. The Father had more work for him to do before he went to the cross. And Jesus was anointed by the Spirit to continue to preach good news to the poor and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so friends, as as I close, I hope that you see that Jesus is calling you to believe this good news that he is proclaiming. In many ways, Christianity is a question of who has authority over the world and who has authority over you. It is a question of who is Jesus. The people of Nazareth refused to accept the person and authority of Jesus. They refused to accept Jesus for who he was. They rejected the good news that he proclaimed. But as Jesus makes clear in referring to the widow of Sidon and to to Naaman the Syrian, God's people, God's people are those who believe. So friends, do not let familiarity or any other obstacle keep you from wrestling with the question of who is Jesus. Don't let those obstacles keep you from believing. Now is the year of the Lord's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come.